Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with Dr. Dana Winters of the Fred Rogers Center on how Mr. Rogers created a safe haven for children. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And I am so, so excited for the guest that I'm going to be speaking with today. Well, maybe many of you are too young to remember watching Mr. Rogers, but I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. And if there was a person who epitomized a safe haven and a secure base for children. It was Fred Rogers. And I wanted to do an interview about his life and all of the things that he believed were important for young children and for the development of young children. So I was able to obtain an interview with Dr. Dana Winters from the Fred Rogers Center. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Winters before we begin our interview, where we will be talking about the life and legacy of Fred Rogers. So Dr. Winters is the executive director of the Fred Rogers Center for Early Learning and Children's Media. Dana Winters seeks to apply and advance the legacy of Fred Rogers in the ways that he served both children and helpers through various projects involving children's helpers across many diverse settings, including childcare, school systems, community programs, residential care, and children's hospitals. She communicates and reflects what is simple and deep about the work of service of children and their families. She supervises the Fred Rogers Center Research Lab and partners with educators, trainers, advocates, and researchers to focus on identifying and amplifying the simple active ingredient that universally helps serve children, and that is the power of human connection. She joined the center after serving as a senior evaluator for the Collaborative for Evaluation and Assessment Capacity at the University of Pittsburgh School of Education and as an educational counselor. Um, She also works with um, the Educational Opportunity Centers at Penn State and holds a PhD in Administrative and Policy Studies from the University of Pittsburgh out there near where Mr. Rogers grew up and also has an MA in Education from Indiana University of Pennsylvania as well as a BA in Sociology from St. Vincent College. I think that you are really going to enjoy this interview. I happen to be uh, taping uh, her intro uh, following the interview instead of before. So I know what is in store for you guys today and I can't wait to share it with you. So 
I will be coming right up with Dr. Dana Winters from the Fred Rogers Center. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. This July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock launches the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the development Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, Dr. Winters. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation about your work at the Fred Rogers Center and, and carrying on the, the work of Fred Rogers. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our conversation as well. Yeah, so, you know, at the end of our last show, you mentioned fred rogers effort to be inclusive now that is a very common term now but that was not a a common term or even a common idea when he was you know writing these shows or producing these shows you know it, it feels like sometimes uh he was always so ahead of his time what do you have to say about that it's true. It wasn't a, a term that we thought of as uh, frequently as we do now, especially it's not that the, you know, the forefront of our work now is to think about these ideas of inclusion, diversity, equity, accessibility. And it wasn't the case when he was beginning the program. Um, you know, we went nationwide in 1968. It was a very different time. But he, um, that was always very much a part of who he was. Yeah. Which was, um, and I, And I think a lot of that had to do with his own background in terms of his faith and spirituality, though he never talked about that on screen. So people are always shocked to learn that he was a Presbyterian minister. Mm -hmm. Yet in 895 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, he never once said God. He never once said anything about any religion. Yet he came to the show preaching the values of many different religions, which is love, kindness, and acceptance. And that was at the foundation of what he did. He was not afraid to enter into those conversations and to demonstrate for children what it looked like to accept other people for who they are and to embrace what might be different, but also find common ground to be able to interact and converse and move forward. You know, I think of, we always think of the the episode with, with Officer Clemens, of course, with in the pool. Yes, also, I was going to bring yes, that up. So I'm course. glad you're bringing it up. And if you can explain it, if any Ooh. listeners don't know what it was. So Officer Clemens, Francois Clemens, um, was, a, a, he was the first um, regular cast member um, of any children's program um, to be uh, to be black, to be a regular cast member on a on a, a children's program, and he was a police officer. So he was Officer Clemens within 
um, Fred Rogers neighborhood. And then he also appeared in many of the operas in the neighborhood of make believe too. But the particular episode we're referencing here is one of the earlier episodes with officer Clemens where it might have been maybe two or three years after the segregation or desegregation of public pools. And we know that the desegregation of public pools was, um, it was a very challenging time, especially in the South, uh, where they um, there were a number of occurrences of um, people throwing acid into pools uh, when there would be uh, Black individuals swimming and trying to um, reinforce the segregation of public swimming pools. And so we see in this episode, Fred sitting with his feet in a kiddie pool and a, and a hose. He's hosing off his feet. It's a warm summer day. And in walks Officer Clemens and they have a conversation. And Fred asks Officer Clemens if he would also like to put his feet into the pool. And he takes off his boots and his socks and, and puts his feet into the pool. And we get a close up of both of their feet in the pool together. And there's this one part where Fred just kind of stares into the camera and doesn't say anything. And then they continue to have a conversation. And in the end, ends up that they share a towel as well. And there's no talk of pools, of no, no talk of segregation, no talk of racism. It is a demonstration of unity, of being able that this is a part of our shared humanity. From that story, you know, every time I hear it, it's just so beautiful what he did. And it was a part of him showing the shared humanity that went on, you know, that the last time that Francois is on the program, they share the pool again. Um, but also it, it, we see instances of uh, Chrissy and Jeff Erlinger and, and children with uh, physical disabilities yes. coming to the program where Fred never talks about what they cannot do. It is always about everything they can do and their feelings around all the things that they can do and their experience in showing children that this isn't the difference is not to be feared difference is to be celebrated and what makes us different and what makes us the same is what makes us together in this world of humanity uh, and that we can share many experiences across our differences yes yes and let let's also talk a little bit, um, maybe from a child development perspective or what Fred thought about it. He was very clear on what's make believe and what's real mm-hmm. and having that separate. And could you share with listeners from a child development perspective, you know, some of his ideas around that, how he should. I mean, it was a very clear sign that you're going to the land of make-believe and you know i eventually found out that there was a button that made the trolley come i was shocked (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a child i just thought the trolley just magically showed up of course Mm -hmm. so you know even that such a very clear transition let's talk about some of that behind his thinking Mm -hmm. again intention there um, that, you know, in his neighborhood, there were all types of things that were real. And in the neighborhood of make-believe, anything was possible. But there was that line of distinction. And it was in 
his real neighborhood where he showed, um, you know, how the Wicked Witch became the Wicked Witch, that it was makeup, that it was a cackle, but that she was still Margaret Hamilton. I love that. Yes. Yes. And so we see that people are what make the world happen. You know, and that was his centering of Jeff Erlinger in his wheelchair, but you're the one who makes it go. So the focus was very much on the people in our world. In the neighborhood of make-believe, we go to a place where there are purple pandas and there are, um, you know, talking uh, platypuses and a, a family of platypus. And we have Harriet the cow, who's our teacher. So anything becomes possible. But it's also in the neighborhood of make-believe where we have very deep conversations about, you know, that that even though it's a neighborhood of make-believe, there is still struggle. There is still challenge. There are still very deep feelings. I think of Daniel Tiger singing the song about being a mistake and asking Lady Aberlin if he was a mistake because he was a tame tiger and he'd Mm. never met a tiger like him. Mm. to uh, Lady Elaine getting so angry that she could not build with clay that she uses her boomerang, tumerang, zoomerang to turn <laughs> Grand Pair's Eiffel Tower upside down. <laughs> and everything, and you know, if we think of the, the operas, there's so much that's possible, but it's showing children that their imagination is limitless. However, there are parts of our world that are real and there are parts of our world that are not. And in television, um, Fred was very mindful that he shows children what is real and what is not, because many television programs were not doing that. Yes, that's true. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of something else that I would love for you to share your thoughts on, especially since I am a child therapist and many of our listeners are. I remember this and I, I can't even remember if they overlapped very much, but I remember reading something about a comparison with a show, maybe like Sesame Street, and that the emphasis on learning letters and numbers and things like that was a very different idea and emphasis than what Mr. Rogers' neighborhood or what Fred Rogers was trying to focus on. You know, I also remember a show called The Electric Company when I was little. Um, so share with our listeners, you know, what was he what was he trying to do? Because as a therapist, I feel like, you know, he was more looking at the emotional, psychological needs rather than educational needs. But I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, I think that, that assessment is very true. Um, so Fred has they'd asked him about that before and he had a number of of sound bites where he talked about the you know we're not concerned with the letters and numbers but we're concerned with every child knows that they are loved because they cannot learn unless they know they are loved and they have that foundation uh he was also far more concerned with what children ended up doing with their letters and numbers rather than how quickly they learned them There's an episode about going to school where Daniel Tiger is so upset because he doesn't know the alphabet yet. Um, But in Mr. Rogers Talks with Parents, I believe that was published in the early 80s, I want to say maybe 1983. There's a section where he talks about television uh, in relation to learning readiness. And it's in, in that section where he spells out what he think are thinks were the six necessities for learning readiness. 
All right, let me see if I can remember them. Uh, the <laughs> first is um, a sense of self-worth, mm. a sense of trust, curiosity, the capacity to look and listen carefully, the capacity to play, and solitude. So those were the six necessities for learning readiness. Wow. And none of those had anything to do with writing your name or knowing your ABCs or counting to 10. Or colors or... Colors or anything that we would, you know, associate today as school readiness. But these were, and I look at that list of six and think, I'm not ready for school right now. (laughs) Because I have not, and I, I think that was the point. We're not going to master those, but that we have to help children to see and to have an appreciation for those things so that they can see themselves as a learner that they can enter into an educational environment to learn and trust uh, the adult to be able to learn from that other person, to learn with peers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so, so fully agree with that. You know, and we even know now from studies of the brain and the impact of trauma that if a child's in the lower parts of their brain where they're feeling unsafe or afraid, they can't move into the cortex and access it in a way that they can learn, you know, numbers and letters and things like that, that it's, it's feeling unsafe um, isn't impediment to learning. It's, you know, it, it's, it's just won't happen. So um yeah so you mentioned the, the solitude and we've t- I, I know that Fred Rogers uh well I, I think I know from reading but you know he he was a person that he had routines in his day and you know his swimming and his own solitude it does seem that there was a calmness and a slowness about him you know when I watch the shows now I love it 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 and I'm you know a somewhat hyperactive you know fast speaking person but it feels like such a like relief or something the way it's all just so slow and simple it does seem like he was very purposeful about that not only he he was that way about his personal life and he brought that to how he interacted with the children didn't he he did he did and for for fred solitude was different from loneliness and and that's always a distinction that i've I've read from him because it's something that doesn't make a lot of sense in my brain all the time. But for Fred, solitude was um, being comfortable with that quiet, being comfortable with your own thoughts. Um, I know I've got two young children and my almost 12 year old tells me the worst thing in the world is to be bored. And I, I see that that appreciation of solitude is is not necessarily appreciated now as much as it may have been then or as much as Fred certainly lived it. And I think for Fred, the, the solitude, the slowing down, the pacing was uh, a choice that he made to be able to show us that uh, it doesn't all have to be fast, that growing up doesn't have to be fast, that we can live in the present, that it's okay to be children, that we don't have to be in a hurry to grow up. 
uh, I think that's a really powerful message that still resonates today. Yes. You know, and being quiet, um, as a person who supervises a lot of therapists, I so often have to gently say, you know, as I, I, I look at videos of work that they're doing, I have to gently say, stop talking. Right. Like we compul- I, I, I have to tell myself that, but I mean, we compulsively talk. And so when he's doing these shows and he has this simple sentence and then he waits and then he, you know, says another like kind of simple thing slowly, it's just feels so different and it's so absent from our world today and so needed. It's an appreciation for what happens in the that in between space. Yes, that's such a good way to say it. Thank you. That's such mm-hmm. a good way. It, that's what it feels like, and it's that intentionality that you're talking about. Like he knew that. Right. Like, right. I mean, he, yes, he had there's the room, there's space to process a little of this. Okay, let's <laughs> like let some of this sink in a minute before we go on to the next thing. Yeah, I think it goes hand in hand for the appreciation he had for the space between himself and a viewer, that he viewed that as holy ground, that the space between sentences, the space between thoughts, um, that that is holy ground too. It's it's the place where we, we process, it's the place where we make meaning. And he wanted to provide that space for children to process what was happening, to make their own meaning, not to be told what the meaning should be but mm. to give them space to make that meaning for themselves. I love that statement. I guess in many ways he was also a philosopher. Yes, my goodness, yes. Yeah. So I know um, we, I mentioned um, earlier when we were talking about carrying on the legacy of his work his very strong feelings about not commercializing or, or or trying to sell products to children while they were watching. And um, that's really something because it's hard to survive in television without doing that. I mean, so it must've been such an important value for him. It really was. And, you know, he, he was very uncomfortable with the idea of children being consumers and that wasn't supposed to be a part of childhood. And, you know, his longtime producer and friend, Margie Whitmer always talked about, you know, everything that you would think that would make successful television, turn that upside down. And that was Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And so today we can't imagine television being successful without some type of commercialization or marketing or branding or uh, playset and and accompanying things. And Fred was really uncomfortable with that. And, you know, that's something that he was very adamant about. And he has talked, he, he, there are many times on, uh, even on video with him talking about how we, we don't appreciate children now, we appreciate for the consumer that they will be someday. And it goes with his appreciation of childhood. They don't have to grow up that quickly. Uh, we have and students he just did not, he, and he never backed down on that the no. whole time. No, he did not. That was something that was um, very strongly his 
his perspective from the beginning until uh, the end of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And even today, we we do not, uh, at the Fred Rogers Center, we don't market any Fred Rogers materials. We don't market anything other than we are available to help people to understand those values and philosophies and put them into practice for themselves. Uh, that it's not our job to build a Mr. Rogers curriculum or you know, a Fred Rogers guidebook, um, but rather it's our job to be able to to make those those learnings available for people to make meaning for themselves. Mm. Well, before we wind down with this interview, I have watched um, the 1969 testimony of Fred Rogers before Congress, and it is, I was mesmerized. And um, I would like you to share the story of that with listeners, why he was there, what he spoke about, and the outcome. Sure. So he uh, was there to speak about um, public television funding. So this was right after, uh, you know, President Johnson had instituted a great deal of funding for public television. And now President Nixon is in office and is looking to cut the majority of that funding. And so they were having uh, Senate hearings on the funding for public television. So if we put this in the timeline, this is always the part that gets me, the timeline of Fred Rogers. Okay. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood goes nationwide February of 1968. He goes to testify in front of the Senate in 1969. So this is one year into Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. One year. Fred is in his early 40s at the time. He's young. He is now just fresh into public television. And at the time, Senator Pastore, who is, uh, he was a senior senator um, from, oh, I'm going to mess this up. It's the Northeast. I want to say it was maybe Massachusetts, Connecticut, somewhere in that area. But Senator Pastore was one of the first Italian-Americans selected to Senate. And he is known as being a pretty tough senator. And so he's overseeing these hearings. And right before it is Fred's turn to read his message, he hears Senator Pastore say, I'm so tired of people coming here and just reading these messages to us. And so Fred, who was always prepared, puts aside his prepared statement and asks Senator Pastore if he can just talk freely. And instead of reading a prepared statement about the importance of public television, has a conversation, a genuine, authentic conversation with Senator Pastore about what he believes the purpose of television is and how television can help children to understand their inner dialogue, to understand who they are, and that through public television, he's able to reach children in a way that hasn't been done before. He asks Senator Pastore if he can offer the lyrics to uh, a song that he has had on the program many years. And he reads to Senator Pastore, uh, the what do you do with the mad that you feel song, which he learned from children. What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? And he goes on and on and appeals to the heart of the issue instead of the pocketbook of the issue, which was truly the issue was funding. 
but instead looks at the heart of why this is important. And at the end, Senator Pastore goes, yeah, you did it. You just earned your $20 million. And that's when at least the recording that we have ends. Yes, yes. And it's it's all, and you can see Fred like kind of deflate a bit, like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It is an incredibly powerful moment. Well, and it is so powerful because instead of that maybe crafted or I don't know how strategic it would have been statement about funding, he spoke to what he believed in most, which was the importance of meeting the needs of children through television. I mean, it's just such a great way for it to end up because it epitomizes who he was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, it really does. And it epitomizes um, how radical he was in that time to say, no, this, this is important because it is for children and children are important. And for that to be, you know, what really brings forth the funding for public television at that time, if we put it in context historically, it was pretty radical. And I remember watching it thinking that it was the needs of a young boy inside that man that were probably responding to what Fred was saying. Oh, yes, most certainly, most certainly. And that's, um, you know, something that we come back to quite often when we think of Fred Rogers, you know, his relevance that has, um, you know, frankly, outlived his his physical life and him telling others that the outsides of childhood will certainly change, but the inner needs of children will remain the same. And that's true. And that inner need is for children to know that they are loved, that they are valued and that they have worth inherently because of they are who they are and that they never have to do anything spectacular to be worthy of love. Those needs, no matter how much the outsides of childhood change, those needs will not change. They will always be fundamentally what children need. What a beautiful way to end our discussion. And I just thank you so much for your time and the things that you taught us in this interview and the things that you brought to life about what Fred Rogers believed. So thank you so much. And I, I'm sitting here wondering, do you, is there a place that you visit the Fred Rogers Center or, okay, I, you know, I'm originally yeah. from Pennsylvania, other side of the state, but I'm thinking I might need to show up on your doorstep one of these days. Absolutely. I hope you do. So we do. <laughs> Fred was against a museum, but we do have a small exhibit that chronicles Fred's life. And of course we have the archive and And so, uh, you know, our archivist is always happy to be able to curate items for people to to view and to understand and to learn from. Um, So we are, again, located on the campus of St. Vincent College, only about an hour from Pittsburgh. And we are open to the public and we're always happy to see visitors. I'm glad for our listeners to hear that. So thank you again for your time and all the wonderful things that you shared with us. Thank you so much, Karen. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.